0: Welcome to Summon Your Superhuman. I'm your host, Ria Mestiza, holistic health coach, mind-body performance practitioner, and this is the pull-the-curtains-back insight into how everyday superheroes have experienced tapping into their superhuman potential. To go from fear, frustration, and struggle to soaring next-level astronomical heights, I believe we all have more amazing within us than we know. I believe we all have unique superpowers. And I believe we all deserve to be our superhuman best. So let's dive in. Hey, superhuman. Today, I have a guest coming to us from Queensland. His name is Bill Lee Emery. Bill has been interviewed on BBC Radio London, ABC Radio Australia, and Australian Channel 7, 9, and 10. He's been in The Age and various other magazines and international podcasts. With over 40 years of experience working with national and international corporations and businesses, world-class skydivers, cyclists, triathletes, golfers and thousands of individuals who want to succeed in life, Bill has distilled his knowledge and experience into a series of books that have just one goal, to help people become better versions of themselves. So if that sentiment alone does not encapsulate what he gets here today. You're in the wrong place.
1: But Bill, welcome to Summon Your Superhuman. Thank you so much. And I love the title, like, superhuman because, um, you know, a lot of us play a smaller game
0: Mm -hmm. than
1: what we really can. But if we really touch into that, you know, highly creative part of us, then ordinary people can do extraordinary things. Um, So I think superhuman, I think, is really apt
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And one of the things that um, I guess connected us was your your latest book, which is how to be bulletproof from criticism. So tell me a bit about that. It's such an intriguing title in itself. Like what was the intent or the idea? Mm. How did that come about?
1: So for the last eight or nine years, I've been um, facilitating and participating in men's groups in Australia. And I've run a wide variety of different programs. Mm. And I was one day I was just sitting at the lunch table listening to men talking, you know, casual conversations. And I just was noticing a theme that a lot of men were saying that they have a difficulty in dealing with criticism or feedback sometimes. Mm. And I'm going, "Hmm, okay, I have some personal experience with that. Mm -hmm. And I've got some ways of dealing with it. So I thought I'll run a workshop. So the next year I ran a workshop that was very well received. I then turned it into a program on, uh, on Udemy. And so I've got like nearly three hours of video. And I was sitting uh, meditations about a year ago thinking, you know, so what's next, you know, at, at, in my era of life? Mm-hmm. You know, what am I going to do next? And, and a book emerged. And I thought, well, what am I going to write on? Everything's been written about, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, Bill, you've done a course. you've done a a whole bunch of videos, here's the next book. So I then transcribed the videos into written word, which is not an easy thing, because Mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of editing that you have to do. And um, it really touched on a couple of an early experience I had. I've been facilitating programs for nearly 40 years. But in my early career, I was teaching to a group of highly credentialed academics, educators so most of them had PhDs and education or at least a master's degree. And I don't have a degree in education. So I was kind of like, (laughs) uh, but I was teaching them the stuff they didn't know. And it was in the second week of an eight week program. And and I I was talking about a particular model of human behavior. And I made what I thought was an innocuous, innocent comment. And I just said that I didn't think that guilt was a good way of getting kids to do things. Mm. And I still don't think it's a good way of getting kids to do things. And this was a group of special education teachers. So I thought I assumed or compassionate, you know, all these kind of things. And it was true in 19 out of 20 of the people in the room. But for one person, it was just I had just stepped on her foot (laughs) and she launched into the most vitriolic personal attack I've ever experienced in my life. No one has come anywhere near the scud missiles that she was sending at me. But i would learned a couple of things. I've only been trained for five years, but i would learned a couple of things that helped me to keep me centered. Mm. So I didn't uh, crumble, which it would have been very easy in that kind of circumstance. Mm. I didn't attack her back, which is part of what I wanted to do. You know, you mess with me, I'll mess with you kind of stuff. But that wouldn't have been if I'd have done that. If there's mm. any flavor of that, there would have been 20 people against me. I don't like that kind of art. Yeah. So if it was a chess game, I had it in checkmate, in two moves, two questions. And so, as I delivered the second question, and she basically just shut up. On the inside of me, I'm going, "Yeah, I'm having this big party. I'm dancing up and down." On the outside, I'm very calm, very you know, very very, very, professional. But I go, "Wow, what happened? What did I do?" So all this internal dialogue was going on. And later on, I was able to debrief and basically put what I'd done in that circumstance down in a sequence where, you know, I could share it with other people and basically criticism will come from two places, See that from other people as it wasn't her
0: mm-hmm.
1: or the one that's probably the most insidious is the internal critic,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which often waits till you're tired, till you're exhausted and it whispers in your ear, what do you make you think you can do this and na-la-la. So, yeah. so,
0: so
1: basically I'll to all those experiences and all the things that I've learned from my training and put into a book, made mm-hmm. it very easy to read, like a two, three hour read. And it's um, people that really tell me oh, I couldn't wait to get to the next chapter. And I couldn't wait. And that's because the way I crafted the book is I wanted to make it a page turner. Mm-hmm. So it keeps people interested. And it's my fifth book. And it's the one I'm the most proudest of. Like the one that I just go, wow, this is just very well edited I had a professional editor that helped me craft it going and take that sentence out change that so kind of take my raw ideas and turn them into something that was that I think it's worth reading
0: definitely definitely as something that springs to mind I mean I can I can obviously see um like I envision already like that moment that you spoke about being in this in this environment where you're teaching and then someone sort of comes at you, like you said, unexpectedly. How how do how do you compose yourself in that moment to even try to come <laughs> up with the with a clear question to return back?
1: Well, the first thing I had to do was to um, you may know about belly breathing, you know, like in yoga, when you breathe down into your belly. And I've learned about that before. So mm. one of the first things I did is I um, just put my hand on my belly and started to breathe into my belly because I had to calm myself down. Mm. I couldn't afford to be in a um, in a stressed state. So that's the first thing I did. And the model that I've just been talking about is called transactional analysis. It's been around since the 60s. And very briefly, he talks about the, the parental part of us, the adult and the little child part. And the parental part has got the critical parent and the nurturing parent. And she was definitely coming from her critical parent. Mm-hmm. Now, you should be doing this and the pointer finger and all that kind of mm-hmm. vitriol that comes from the critical part of the parent.
0: Yeah.
1: And so the child part of me was feeling vulnerable, threatened, attacked. So I had to calm the little kid inside of me was going, oh, no, well, help <laughs> and come and emotionally support myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm breathing, I'm um, thinking rapidly as to, um, you know, people only attack somebody else if they've got something to defend. If they don't have anything to defend. There's nothing to attack. So my rational thinking was going, what is she? You know, what have I just exposed? Why is she attacking me? What's underneath that? Mm. So all these things are going on all at the same time. Yeah. I'm breathing into my belly. I'm emotionally supporting myself. My adult is thinking, rapidly as to and why she's still, you know, screaming and yelling abuse and all the rest of that stuff. So um, I knew eventually that she'd have to stop. You know, a day later, five, <laughs> five minutes later, she would have to stop. So I'm just continuing to emotionally support myself. And that really... That was really the crux of me saving my dignity and basically being able to think clearly. Because if I, if I started to panic, mm. then I, when, you, when people panic, they don't think clearly. Great. Mm. So I had to have some really kind of clear boundaries within myself as to what I did. So when she finally stopped talking, <laughs> I asked her two questions. And those two questions just shut her up. And as I asked the second question, I could see 19 little smiles from the other people, you know, quietly. They weren't going to be too extravagant about it. Yeah. But it was like, hey, you got to, you know, like if, if anyone in that room was the critical parent, it was her.
0: Mm.
1: So what I had just done, I had exposed, I'd given common language to her peers mm. as to how she showed up in life. So that's why she was attacking me. She wanted to shut me down because I just exposed her way of dealing with kids and as a human being. So, so that happened oh, 35 years ago. And if I met that woman now, I'd give her a big hug because I have told this story to countless people <laughs> uh, and how to deal with you know, someone attacking you. You have to be able to emotionally support yourself. You have to. You have to learn some of those things. Otherwise, you'll just get steamrolled
0: yeah absolutely and uh, and that's the breath work and and dealing in that you know because most people be like a deer in the headlights when when someone sort of comes at them like that so um, composure through breathing and yes. really trying to identify I guess the place of which the person who is coming with you at, at you or with you know to you yeah their criticism you know wh- what is the root of that uh, yeah you know, yeah. you to take that personally, I suppose it's, it's also.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting thing. One of the comments Kressner often had it have from people is, "Well, you know, I take things to heart. If someone says something, I take things. How can I stop making everything personal and taking things to heart?" And there's literally, if you listen to our language, um, I'll just use this pen. So I've got a pen in front of me, and if there's a, this is the scud missile or the criticism, and it's going towards my heart, when people take things to heart, that's literally what they do. They take this criticism and they put it really close to their heart. So when someone criticizes what they've done, the pen, for Mm. example, then they'll just point their finger and it just slips a little bit and it goes right into them. In other words, they don't separate what they have done from who they are. They make them the same and they're different. Yeah. So when people go, okay. So if someone, let's say, um, no, you probably won't do this, but let's say you were to call me a goose.
0: <laughs>
1: now, there's a couple of um, default programs I have in my head. The first is the difference between a fact and an opinion. So mm-hmm. coming back to this pen, if I say um, to you, so Ria, what do you think of this pen? And you go, and you say, well, that's a that's a lousy pen, or yes. it's a beautiful pen. Mm-hmm. Both those are opinions.
0: Yep.
1: They're your subjective view of this particular pain. It's actually purple and it's got some writing on it. That's a fact that anyone can verify. So if I'm not able to distinguish the difference between a fact and an opinion, when someone says you're a goose mm-hmm. to me or any other words, I go, oh, wow, maybe I am. And if I'm not able to work out, is that your opinion or is that a fact? because it's useful, especially in a professional uh, arena, to be able to take feedback, to be able to take criticism. Otherwise, how can we ever grow and expand and have some kind of self-awareness of what we're doing as to whether it will work or not? Mm-hmm. So part of that was me also, when she was saying all these things to me, is going, is this a fact or is an opinion? And it was clearly her opinion. Mm-hmm. So then the other thing I have to put into this is who, whose opinion about me Am I going to honor hers or mine?
0: Yeah.
1: It's going to be mine. Yeah, I've been around me a lot longer than she has. (laughs) And I would discuss her opinions about me. So I have to be I have to know who I am as a human being and I have to be able to um, back myself. And not in a distorted egotistical exaggerated way but more in a humble hum- uh, hum- um, yeah a humble kind of this is who I am knowing yourself is like real key so there's a couple of things that go around my head as to what when someone does attack me and I have to say um, this is the most divisive era that I've ever lived in
0: mm-hmm
1: like the last few years, family member against family member, community against them and us, them and us, them and us. And it's rare that you can have people from different sides of the arguments being able to speak with each other without condemning the other, but really listening deeply to the concerns or whatever the others have. Yeah. And so being able to be bulletproof and to learn how to do that, because all these things are learnable skills that I learned from somebody else. I didn't make them up. I learned from somebody else. Sure, I put them in my own language, my own stories, but basically this has been around for a long, long time. So I just happen to be the vehicle, if you like, for this particular iteration of these kind of principles that are timeless.
0: Definitely. And and that's one of the reasons why, like I said, your, the title of your book attracted me because of, of criticism being such a, a prominent you know it really is at the forefront especially right now and so i was just even thinking about again like that scenario where you're you're confronted with you know this this criticism and you compose yourself and breathe and and breathe through and and you returned with a question you know and even just the idea of returning with a question it's almost like uh trying to Turned the mirror back upon her to be like, why are you actually ask? Well, why yeah. are you saying this to me, actually? What, where, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, where are you coming from? What, what's all this about? Mm-hmm. And actually, interestingly, after the class, someone, one of the other participants said to me that she'd just gone through a very bitter divorce. And so uh, men weren't her, weren't her favourite human <laughs> beings uh, at the time, and she felt that I was going to be a good target. Yeah. Um, I wasn't. Um, but interesting enough, right at the end of the, of the eight, weeks, eight weeks, I think it was the six weeks, mm-hmm. you know, when we did a roundup and asked everyone so what they'd got from the program. And all credit to her, she stayed for the rest of the program. She didn't, you know, walk and never come back. She stayed, which I, which considering things I was talking about, I thought was pretty brave. And mm-hmm. um, she, she was, of course, was the last person to respond and everyone's going, what are you going to say? <laughs> and she said... Um, in a kind of quiet voice, she said, you know, I've come to realise that there's a lot of things that I need to learn. And I'm going far out. Like, it's good on you to have the awareness to realise that your way of doing the world is just something that you learned from your parents, from whoever, and you've incorporated that and you haven't been able to separate and go, what's the good stuff and what's the stuff I need to drop? And as human beings, you know, we, we're influenced by our family, whoever it is. Who brings up? So their values, their ways of being in the world, basically we absorb those without any um, discernment. We just take them on board. That's the way the world is. Mm-hmm. And I saw a cartoon um, on social media the other day where it had like a grandfatherly person, you know, admonishing their their child, and that parent now was admonishing the next generation, and and it said. I think of the Bible, that the sins of the father will be passed down seven generations, which mm-hmm. means that stuff, you know, I I didn't become a, a parent until I was 40, but I was um, so blessed that I did a whole bunch of parent training before I got to be a parent. Mm-hmm. So I got to be aware of some good things to pass down and some rubbish things not to do. Um, but somewhere, somewhere along the line, someone has to go, you know, this this concept, this idea just doesn't work anymore. It's not useful. It's actually damaging. So how can I change my behaviour or how I hold this particular value, whatever it might be, to be more humane, more compassionate, more more generous with who we are as a human being, uh, more superhuman, if you like, in, in that kind of full emotional gamut of what we can be as human beings. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and that brings it around, I mean, you mentioned a few things there, it's important to be aware of oneself and to be, you know, comfortable and aware of oneself. And so when we talk about personal criticism, so that's the other spectrum, it's how, how is it best to tackle? Well, you know, you said you, you've had an opportunity to learn from your own experiences and what you've seen. So it's like, most people default to harsh criticism of self. Yes. Oh like you idiot, or you indeed you know, and and what what would you suggest is is a better practice instead of just calling yourself names?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's actually it's a really important question. And because I because I've written the book and I'm having a conversation with the people, a lot of people go, Yeah, you know, my my internal critic is just hammering me all day long. Mm-hmm. And and so I ask them, you know, if they've got any kids and, they, you know, if they say yes, it's okay, so when your child is like two or younger and they're learning to walk, what kind of parent are you Are you encouraging? Or do you just say, come on, get up, you fool, we've seen us walk, and, you know, would you do that to your child? They go, no, no, that's inhumane. Okay, well, and people are often very compassionate with others, and they are shit at being compassionate towards themselves. They know how to do the skill of compassioning, but somewhere along the line, they haven't gone, hey, should I do this with myself? And, um, you know, when, when some are being self-critical. So the, here's, the, here's an, a story, an analogy. So why do parents, for example, nag their kids, especially teenagers, to do their homework? What do you think?
0: Uh, Most of well... From my my parents wanted me to do well in school because they didn't get an opportunity to, to 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 do well in school.
1: Okay, so why do they want you to do well in school?
0: Because they well my well both of them actually didn't end up being able to finish school because they they couldn't afford to finish school. So education was very important to them.
1: To okay, so why that. should they care if you went to school or not and did well at school? Who cares?
0: Because they thought that education was the only way that I can succeed in life.
1: Okay. So let's say you get an education. Why should they care? So they want you to do well in life? Mm -hmm. Okay, why?
0: So that I can have a better life than they did.
1: So why should they care? Because they love me. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the key thing. So parents <laughs> make their kids because they can see if they don't, you know, get good grades at school, you may not go to university, you may not get the job that you want, you may not have the lifestyle that you want, you may not have an enjoyable life. So they come from a place of love, mm. but their delivery stinks. Yeah. You know, you nag someone from your critical parent, you know, you should be doing this. Any shoulds, like when I've worked with people and they say, you know, I should be losing weight and I should stop smoking or I should, if there's a should in there, yeah. the other part is the rebellious part of us that says, oh, yeah, you tell me what to do and I'll do the exact opposite.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In fact, there's a really interesting one class I did many, many years ago on the Sunshine Coast when I was living there. I was teaching weight management. And a friend of mine was doing the, all the biology and all the she's an she's doing all those things, and I was really doing the mental and the emotional stuff. And I was talking about this model of parent, adult, and child. And she realised the reason that she was overeating was it was her res, her rebellious response, unconscious rebellious response to her own internal critic saying, "Stop doing that! You've got to do this! You've got to do that!" So she said, "Oh yeah, you watch." And just, (laughs) and so when she realised that, she just changed in an instant. Mm -hmm. So we have to be aware of what's underneath the criticism. So one of the things that I've just started is um, a new programme. It's going to be a workshop on how to deal with your inner critic and really to transform it into your best ally Mm -hmm. because your critic is never going to go away. But if we don't understand what's underneath it, then we can't get to the positive intention that that critical part is doing for us. If we can get to that positive intention underneath that behaviour, then we go, oh, yeah, of course I want this. Of course I want to do well at school. Of course I want a happy life. And if you're nagging me to do my homework right now that's going to help me do that, hey, I'll do my homework because I've got a a bigger reason. Mm. But it's when we just don't look at the behaviour what's underneath it then we can get trapped into the rig roll and the, and the acts and the, the dynamics of that rather than going, ah, huh, the reason my parents are nagging me is because they actually love me. You know, a 14 year old go, ah, oh, my parents love me. They're nagging me. <laughs> they <laughs> care about <laughs> me. They go, no, bloody parents. I want to... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it might be. So it's understanding that. And, um, I was talking with someone the other day and, and, you know, she was stuck. And so we kind of played around with why she was stuck. And one was her internal critic was just beating herself up. And I, and I asked her, I said, you know, my sense of view is you're a pretty compassionate human being. She said, yes, I am. I said, but so how are you going with being compassionate towards yourself? And she just, I don't. And it's exactly the same pattern. So she hasn't explored why it is that she does, not so much why, but... It's actually the better question is how. How do I become more compassionate to myself than the shit I'm dumping on myself 24 hours a day? Mm -hmm. And so part of that is... um, I explained more about this book, but I I want to give you this that I learned many, many years ago. And when we do something... Often, uh, for example, I've done a lot of presentations and in the early days I'd finish a presentation and workshop and as soon as i get off the stage, I'd say, hey, he didn't do this well, and that was a mess and you mess it up. And I'd reiterate all the things I've done wrong. And, and one of the general principles is whatever we give attention to, we'll do more of. Mm-hmm. So if I want to um, be healthy, I need to pay attention to the things I'm doing to be healthy. Yeah. But if all I'm paying attention to is all the wrong things that I'm doing, then I'll be drawn towards that. Yeah. yeah. So I started to notice, and this was taught to me by one of my mentors that I mentioned a lot in the book. And he said, when you do something, no matter what it is, he said, ask yourself these two questions, and your listeners, you're free to write these two questions down. <laughs> and the first question is, what do you like about what you've just done? When my daughter was young, she'd bring a painting to me and she'd say, Daddy, what do you think of my painting? And I know that she's actually asking a couple of questions, one conscious and the other one unconscious. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I would say to her, so, so, darling, what do you like about what you've just done? And she'd say, I like the reds and the blues and the greens and shapes, whatever. And then I'd ask her, so if you were to do it again, what would you change or do differently? So that's the second question, what should you change or do differently? And she said, well, I'd have more of this there or I'll do this or whatever it might be. So I've now now brought into her awareness her mm. strengths, the first thing, and the things that she can change or do differently. Notice that there's no criticism in those two questions. Mm. There's just awareness, expanding awareness of something. So then I'd ask her, so first of all, I'd get her opinion about what she's done. Yeah. Yep. Then I'd ask her, so would you like my opinion about what you've just done? I and mean, when she was younger, she would say, Yeah. When she got older, she'd say no. I'm not quite okay <laughs> with that. <laughs> Especially as a teenager. Um, so I'd say, I like this, 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 and I would focus on things that I was genuinely liked. It wasn't I never made anything up because that would be disrespectful to her. And then I'd say, well, what you could do, or what I might do, whatever, and I'd try this, this. this." So I'd give her some parameters, some external feedback as to my opinion, and I would frame it up as my opinion so she was aware of that. And then so she can make her own internal adjustments. But I wanted her to start to embody an internal framework of when she does something to notice what she does right first because whatever you notice you'll do more of and then secondly um in a an emotional way go well if i was to do it again i could do this this or this so and, and i've carried on that habit personally since well for 40 years when i first learned doing that and and now when she's in her teenage years and she would write write something for you know school and she'd send it to me so what do you think of this dad and i'd say well I'd actually ask her, what do you think first? (laughs) Get Mm -hmm. her opinions first. Then I'd give mine if she wanted them. And sometimes I noticed that sometimes I'd ask her um, if she wanted my opinion or not. And sometimes she'd say, no, thanks. I just want a sounding board and I'll be fine with that. Then as she got into university and her essays were more complicated. Um, you know, we'd have a good discussion about that. And as I was writing more books, I'd send bits to her and say, Tell me your opinion about this. This is what I like. This is what I'm trying to tell me. And so, and that's, I know from her behavior now, she's 32, that that behavior is embedded. And that's something I learned a long time ago. And it's been such a blessing to me and not only to her, but to uh, a lot of other people that I've expressed this particular idea to. And I didn't make it up. Someone told me, and I'm just happily passing it on.
0: That's wonderful. I love that. Right. And, yes, it, it is 100% true because often criticism is taken as a negative, you know, or that yes. person criticised what I was doing or that person told me what was wrong with me and what was wrong with what I was doing and, and they really take it so negatively. So yes. when when it comes to, I guess, your own criticisms or or even asking for it, you know it is it is important to to try to express the opportunity uh for it to to better improve you so whether yes. it's and, from and, yeah. from or from yourself it's it's an opportunity for improvement
1: indeed yeah and if you think about you know as human beings we are always evolving we're always changing especially like in a professional environment, we need to be able to take feedback because then we can know what's working, what isn't working. But if we're so precious and we can't, we don't have an internal way of taking feedback, then how can we ever improve? Now, there are a lot of programs now in the corporate world that actually teach people how to give Feedback in a way that's constructive. So the person learns from it, you know, in terms of where you tell them the setting, the context, all those things. Because ultimately, the more you can grow people, the more they will be able to serve the organization, whatever it is. But even in our own lives, you know, when we do something, and it doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're five or, you know, 99, Mm -hmm. there's always something we're going to be evolving into. So if we build on those things which are naturally there, and then look objectively and go, what else can I change or do to make this easier, more fun, or whatever it might be, then we win. And everybody else wins around us.
0: A common question I, I often get from my clients or, or even managers and things like that, it's, you know, how do they give that constructive feedback without offending a person? Or, you know, often if a person has to be open to it, you know, it's like, how, how do I create that opening to give the feedback to the person?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is you never do it in public. Mm. you always separate the person you make the thing place an in informal it might be a it might be a review time which is a perfect time to do that but you can also ask some questions so, so Joe with this project how do you feel that you're going
0: mm. so
1: you get their response as to how they feel and are you having any challenges and with what you're doing and with those challenges is there anything that I can do as your manager to help you to sort those things out so if you were to give yourself feedback Joe about all this, what would you say to yourself? The person then can be some self-aware and go, yeah, you know, really, when I delegate, I'm not really good at doing that because I haven't learned that. And so then as a manager that say, Well, we actually got a course on delegation coming up. Would you like to come and do it? And and you can also track things. So yeah, let's have another chat in three months' time and see how you're going, or month's time, whatever it might be. And say, but it, part of it, a very important part of this, is the intention of the manager. If the intention of the manager is to help grow that person, that human being, then sure, you can learn all the words, but it's the intention that will really hold it together. But if the intention is, I'm going to punish you because I don't like you, they can learn all the books, all the ways of what to say, but that intention will still be there and it'll still feel like this person's attacking me. So the intention is really important but also you know, there's a whole bunch of online resources you can get up to how to sell it up, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But if the good if communication is that and you've got a good rapport with the person and they know that you're doing this because you want to help them, yeah. then everything else will tend to flow from that. You can learn the other techniques you know elsewhere. it's easy enough to do that. but really it's where you're coming from. And I remember um, uh, uh, Branson he said train people enough. So they could leave you and t- and treat them so well, that they never want to, which I thought was brilliant, like train people so well that they could easily leave you, but treat them so well that they never want to. And often in the corporate setting, you know, people say that they might have a description or a vision, or whatever, and you cannot tell people to put their heart into something what you can do is create the culture around them where people naturally want to put their heart in because they're celebrated, because they're recognised, because they're acknowledged, because they're given a the power of making decisions within their role or mm-hmm. they've got a, an opportunity to influence things. That's what will make people stay. And, and leadership has got to, you know, yeah, we could talk about leadership for a long, long <laughs> time. Well, really what you're
0: saying is you're, is you're expressing how important it is that you show care and concern, you know, like that. Absolutely. Yes, I same thing. I preach that all day long. It's the intent of the conversation. It's the intent of yes. what you're doing. Otherwise, what's the point? You yep. know, it's, it's aimless otherwise. But yes. you know, in, in your book, you mentioned um, there were several childhood stories of, of how they influence your direction.
1: Uh, yes. So when I was in primary school, I had two of my favourite teachers. I'll, I'll take the first one. When when I was uh, my, one of my favourite teachers, Miss Surtees is her name. She won't be alive anymore, and she was teaching all the kids how to sing. So I'd never sung before, and we all wanted to be in the choir because that's a cool thing to do. So I'm, I'm I don't know, seven or eight years of age. Mm-hmm. And we're all in a line, and we're singing our little hearts out, and she walks along, she and she listens to every child and says something to them. She whispers something in my ear, and what she said just went straight to my heart. And it made such an impression on me, and it influenced probably the next 30 years of my life. Wow. Now, I, I, won't, I won't tell the ending of the story because... um <laughs> There's more detail in there. And the other one, same primary school, Mm -hmm. and this teacher was a Mr. Sergeant, and he taught us maths and he taught us English. And we were, we all had to write a a descriptive essay. So I picked a a magazine, and there was... So this is in England where I grew up, that part of my life. And there was a forest scene, English forest scene, and a squirrel running up, and I'd print stuff like that. So I wrote my, my essay. And then he... When we, he was marking them and he was giving feedback, and he said, um, "You know, of all the essays that I've read today, there's one that stands out." And then he said something, and what he said has influenced my life ever since then. Now, again, I won't tell you ending of that story because it kind of spoils the other little bits. But the the point about this is, that these were two innocent events. Mm. Something happened. The teacher said something, and I made meaning of those events. So if so what I'm about to say here is probably the most important, if I was to give a concept, this is probably the juiciest one that I could offer your listeners. Okay. Um, every event in life, so uh, just going back, uh, my mentor, John Barnaby, who was teaching me all these things about transactional analysis, went for a whole year, every weekend pretty much went to a workshop. And one, work, one workshop we put on the, on the flip chart, he said, life is meaningless. And we're going, what? Life is meaningless? You know, we're here on this journey of self-discovery and you're saying life is, what the heck are you talking about? Anyway, he just what he said was that every event in life is innocent, is meaningless. So, for example, I'm walking down the street, I see someone I know, I wave hello, they totally ignore me. That's purely an event. But in my head, I can make all kinds of meanings about that. Mm-hmm. Why do they ignore me? Don't they like me? Maybe they've never liked me. Hey, maybe no one's ever liked me. No. And I can, I can crank it up. And that's just one meaning. So every event, you could have at least 10, a dozen, a hundred different meanings. And he said, so while the event itself is innocent, is meaningless, as human beings, we are compelled to make meanings out of stuff. And he said, the meanings that we make become our reality. So if the meaning I made from that person not acknowledging me was, maybe there's something wrong with me, that's a reality that I would create. And I'd come from the space of being worthless. Another meaning I could put on that same event is, why wow, he was really distracted. I might just check in with him later on in the day and see if he's okay. Completely different meaning and completely different set of circumstances that would come from that. So every event is innocent. We are meaning-making machines. We can't help ourselves. The meaning that we make becomes our reality. And he said, the meanings that we choose are always self-chosen. So I choose whether it's this meaning or that. Nobody else does. I am responsible for the meanings that I place on every single event in life. And the kicker, the real punchline, he said, it doesn't matter whether the meaning that you're making is true or not because that's always debatable. He said, the real important thing is, is the meaning that you're making useful or not? And if it's useful, keep it. But if it's not useful, find a way of dropping it. And so I learned the theory and then I had an experience not long after that with my girlfriend at the time. And uh, she said something to me and, and I immediately started making a meaning out of that, which was not particularly useful to me or to her. And I'm going, ah. Oh. So I became self-aware of the meaning that I was choosing. And if mm-hmm. I'd gone down that path, we had, would have had an argument, you know, whatever. And so my de- one of my defaults now, if I'm upset by anything in my world, I know I've made a meaning out of something and I need to go deeper to find out what the meaning is and what's underneath that and what's in it. And if I can find the meaning that is underneath all those layers then I'll, I can ask myself is this useful or not and if it's not useful drop it. Mm-hmm. And, your, and and your listeners will have an opportunity to put this in place almost immediately.
0: <laughs> yeah, Absolutely and I think it I mean it just illustrates how much you know self Development and self-discovery—you—you've gone yes. some, and to identify these childhood events that had happened in your life, you know, whether it be positive or negative, that these two teachers had expressed some sort of feedback to you, and and it, you said it stayed with you for, for yeah, years. a long, long time.
1: Yeah, and one was positive, and well, well, I made one positive and one negative,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: but both influenced my life, and so it's like. You know, when we're young, we're a blank slate. There's nothing on it, whatever is said. Especially if we hear someone else saying something about us and they don't know we're hearing it, yeah. that becomes indelible. You know, we're listening to our parents talking to their friends about us. They don't know that we're at the door hearing the conversation. And they say whatever they say becomes emblazoned in our in our in our bodies and in neurology. And sometimes it can be good, sometimes not so good. So, but ultimately, we are the we need to learn to become sovereign human beings. Choose the bits of us that we keep and let go of the stuff, other people's opinions, or simply not useful. Because that's the only way we're really going to become bulletproof <laughs> and it is a journey it's like all these things are learnable i learned from other people so they're all learnable they do take a little bit of time to become embedded in behavior which is automatic which is really where you want to get to
0: yeah and you have to practice these things so you know we, we can yes. take these golden nuggets away today but we yep. have to be implement them and practice them for them to be useful Yeah, um, indeed. which is uh you know you speak about the three concepts key concepts Uh, For for takeaways from from your from your book, which we've already, I I believe, probably touched upon quite a few of those. We have today. Is there one that's missing, or or have we touched? No,
1: but let me just reiterate them because it's really worthwhile. And the first one is the difference between a fact and an opinion. Mm -hmm. So if I don't know the difference between a fact and an opinion. Then I'm gone, you know, and, and especially when I hear a politician say, the fact of the matter is, I know what they're going to do. Is they're going to give me their opinion, which is biased <laughs> towards whatever it might be. So, but being able to distinguish as a fact you know, what is an opinion, yeah. and underneath that is whose opinion about me is more important. Is there going to be some troll on Facebook or social media that said something? And we're going to make their opinion about me more important than my opinion about myself. That's the second one. It's kind of related. Mm. And the third one is that everything is innocent. Every event in our life is totally innocent. And this took me a little while for me to really understand. Because when I first heard it, it was this like, it was a big shock. I mean, everything is innocent. What about this? And what about that? And I'd give all these examples of what's happening in the world. And, but when I really pared it down, it's, it's my response to something else that's going to become my reality. And if I'm not in charge of my emotions, my thinking, my action, then I'm somebody else's puppet. And my ego didn't like the thought of being somebody else's puppet. I'd much rather be my own puppet. <laughs> so if, if, if your listeners can just take those things and explore them. And you don't have to take my word for these things being true. Mm. You know, but it's it's in the experience and the doing of it that you'll work out how useful it is.
0: I love the word innocence. Like I just, yeah. it really, you know, I, I just take taken away with that with that word in itself. So I think it just opens up, you know, that childlike innocence, that uh, unbiased, you know, that just curiosity and and mystery. And yeah. I think yeah, that summarizes it perfectly.
1: Um, yeah. And, in fact, if I just come back to being superhuman, yeah. um, I reckon five-year-olds
0: mm-hmm.
1: have got the key to being superhuman. They have this incredible energy. They have no boundaries, which can sometimes be a difficulty for the parents. But it's just like their innovation, their creativity, their innocence about things. And if anyone's going to be superhuman, I reckon we've got to get back to being a, a creative five year old and bring that energy into our life because without it, we're bland, like we're beige.
0: Yeah. I, I think a, a, a lot of where I'm at right now is my ability had to have reconnected with my little rear, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And getting and finding that love and again, curiosity for the and innocence and yeah. back into the rear I am today. That's really. Yeah, I don't know, just unleashed a, yeah, a, yeah. a love of life and a love of me again, I think that that's yep. really important.
1: Yeah, that's what makes us human, superhuman is our little five-year-old that just, <laughs> you
0: know,
1: Batman, Batgirl, you know, all these kind of <laughs> things that just like that energy, it doesn't matter. You know, I've met people in the 80s and 90s they're so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because mm-hmm. they've got this wild, free child inside of them that they're still tapping into. And I met people in their 20s that you just go, wow, what happened to them? Like, So part of aliveness is that little part of us that just so full of curiosity, wonder, awe, all these kind of things, which just, is just the most precious part. Of, well, I believe, my opinion is that of a human being is that little child, that one that just lives life full of wonder.
0: Yeah, I, I love watching children play. But, um, yeah. you know, even as you were saying that, it just reminded me of that saying that, you know, a lot of people die at 25 and are buried at yeah. 70, you know, because yeah. they just let their dreams just yes lead them and, and they don't do yeah. anything about it. But um, you speak a lot about, and I do too, you know, our mentors, you know, importance of yeah. Yeah, yeah. learning from people. Why, why, in your opinion, do you think it's important to have mentors?
1: Well, because when we're 20, 25, 30, 35, whatever, whatever age we are, there's always someone that has been there before us and knows the kind of things that can give us guidance. There was one story I love about the old lion and the young lion. I don't know if you heard the story or not, but it's like there's this old lion and he's got scars, he's been battled, you know, he's been through all this kind of stuff. He's sitting on, on Little Hill and he looks and he can see this young dude, this young lion, and he looks at the lion and goes, wow, I remember when I was like that, you know, full full of piss and vinegar and all those kind of things. That, um, and I'd love to tell him some of the stories, you know, the, my experience in life and maybe just help him along. Anyway, zoomed down to the young lion and looks up and sees the old lion and goes, wow, look at that bloke. He's just been around for so long, those scars, the stories that he could tell me. But he would probably wouldn't want to talk to a young bloke like me. Mm. And I think there is value between old lions and young lions actually connecting together because they give each other gifts The old line gives a gift of wisdom, of experience, of insights that the young line will never be able to have until they get to be that age. Mm -hmm. And the young line, of course, gives that innocence, that youth, that that, unlimited horizons, which Mm -hmm. the old line has lived through. And it's like, you know, a lot of uh, very wealthy, successful people find ways of giving back because they really acknowledge the struggles that they've been through and now they've got whatever it might be. And there's a natural, I think it's a natural human thing to want to give back to, you know, the people that have been where you've been in the past and would have loved to have had mentors. I've been very blessed with having some very wise mentors that obviously either saw something in me or liked me or whatever They might have seen the mess I was at, I don't know what, but it doesn't really matter. But it was uh, I'm really glad that they said, hey Bill, you know, go down this path or explore this. They wouldn't tell me what to do, but they open doors for me to say, go look at this, go explore that. I think there's something there for you to find. And from an, an older person now mentoring some people, it's such a pleasure when you see someone that's got some talent or some gifts, and you can help shape or give some guidance to. And it's a gift on both sides. Both, both parties win. And my daughter now, she's, uh, she's 32. She's had some very good mentors in her career. And it's like it's a network of people that you can call on and go, hey, this is what's going on. Give me some guidance here or give me some pointers.
0: And that's priceless. That's priceless. Absolutely. I, I definitely couldn't agree agree more. You made a, a comment, and not on this conversation, but I read this elsewhere, that there's a second wind in life. <laughs> yes. and, and I actually I have to say, I tell a lot of people off that are in their 40s, 50s, or even 60s, ah, oh, it's too late for me, Rhea. There's nothing. You know, I've had a good life. You know, this is the home yeah, stretch yeah. now. And you make a comment about it, it's never too late to be a legend. And I just picked yeah. up. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. So <laughs> why is it never too late to be a legend? Because
1: if we're breathing, if we're still alive, there's still stuff that we can add into life. And I've seen. A lot of people, when they get to a certain age, they go, that's it, I'm done. Mm. And it's almost like their five-year-old just goes, is just been kicked out of the room. And the five-year-old is always wanting to explore. So the second wind, like if any of your listeners have done any kind of sport, you know, running, swim, doesn't matter, you'll get to a point where you get to, you know, you hit the wall. And, and if you go past it, then you literally get a second wind. And the second wind is stronger than the first wind. Mm. Because now you've got all the experience of the first win and all you've gone through, all the pain. When you get into the second win, things are easier. But if we just stop there and go, that's it, you're dead. And, and, and people literally, you know, the stats will, will tell you when people retire and they don't find something else to do, they'll die within six months. They become sedentary. They lose their spark for life because they've been doing whatever it might be. They gave them purpose. And if people are purposeless,
0: yeah. they die. Yeah.
1: And so the second wind is like, I don't care how old someone is. You can mm-hmm. be 99. Nine. Like, I live in an eco-village here in Crumbon Valley. Yeah. And one of our neighbours, he's, um, I think he's 94 or something like that. He's a bright, sparkly gentleman. He gets involved in stuff. I'm okay? going, I wanna be like you, you know, I would have been 94 and bright eyed and bushy-tailed and still doing the stuff, which means that I still have <clears throat> vitality. Mm-hmm. And if we if we don't have that spark, that that five-year-old vitality, we're basically on a slow slight, a slow slope down into the sea.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, age is, is not a limiting factor, I think. No, That's absolutely. Like get a little lost on their way or their you know, not as inspired to be doing what they're doing, and they just need to reconnect to themselves. Yeah. Brings them, you know, that purpose or, or brings them joy to their life. Yeah,
1: and actually, you know, as you're speaking, your hands are around your heart. Yeah, and when people are connected to their heart, mm-hmm. that's when they connect to deeper purpose. Mm-hmm. If people are disconnected from their heart and they often get stuck in their head, that's when they disconnect from the joy of life. So part of Finding your second wind is literally putting your hand on your heart and closing your eyes, breathing into your heart and saying, hey, heart, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. What do we do next? What's our next adventure? And then they can explore whatever comes up because something will always come up. There's always another way that we can involve into another finesse part of us or maybe whatever it might be. But our human spirit wants to be engaged in this life.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, I, as an author, you can connect to, you know, the chapters of life. And I've got clients in their 60s that are just like, well, this new chapter that I've opened up now.
1: Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It's and they make hero. it sound more
0: exciting than, than just yeah. like, <laughs> <down>. <laughs> this new chapter going on.
1: <laughs> yep. And there's always, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with The Hero's Journey, Joseph Campbell's yeah. work. Yeah. yeah, so we're always, and if your listeners don't know what this is, then just go search hero's journey and find a whole bunch of information. But we're always in a hero's journey. There's always some other adventure mm. that our spirit wants us to get engaged in. And for me, if, if what, what I'm doing isn't a game worth playing, well, then it's time for me to go deeper into my heart and go, what is the game? that my heart really, truly, deeply wants to play because that's where the joy is. That's where the buzz is. That's the energy that keeps me alive and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome. This, is, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for everything that you've you know, brought to the listeners today and, and examples and, and just your wisdom that now you're now sharing with, with everyone in how they can better themselves in their lives. And so, a question that I ask everyone that's been on the show is what does summoning your superhuman mean to you?
1: Ah, you know, the, the thing that came to, to mind was a BG song, Staying Alive. Yes. It's, and That's what it does. It helps me stay alive. <clears throat> so, the more connected I am to my heart, the more love, joy, bliss, all those things are in my life. So, yeah. staying alive, staying alive, and staying awake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for being on the show today. Been
1: I my pleasure. I everyone
0: that. to get a listen of this, and I will put everything, uh, everywhere you can get in contact with Bill in the show notes. I, I can't thank you enough for your wisdom today, and uh, it's been wonderful connecting with you.
1: It's been my absolute pleasure. I've Been love talking to you. Obviously, we've got <laughs> so many things in common. We could probably talk for another hour, but you know,
0: I believe we could. Maybe, <laughs> maybe on the next book.
1: <laughs> okay, let's do that. Let's do that. Oh, by the way, there will be the spin off for this book. Yeah. Will be another five.
0: Oh, wow. There you go. So it'll be a series. There and, will. Well, then there definitely will have to be a part two, I'd say. <laughs> Good. All right. well, thanks again for your time today, Bill. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, I hope you were taking note, but just in case you weren't, let me summarize some of mine. <laughs> so, Bill's three key concepts. One, the difference between fact or opinion. And the importance of backing yourself. Very important. Two, whose opinion about me is more important? Mine or whomever is critiquing me? <laughs> and three, every event in life is totally innocent. Now, that one I'll just leave you to ponder. But there were quite a few things that he mentioned there and I'll just say uh, with the two questions he also said that are good to ask yourself in terms of personal critiquing for your own self-evaluation is what do you like about what you've just done? And if you were to do it again, what would you change or do differently? So yeah. Oh, and I'll also mention a about mentors The importance of how they open the doors and just invite us to have a look inside. So I think with those gems right there, I'll leave it with that. And I hope that you enjoyed learning from Bill today in our discussion about criticism. I think personally, you know, in thinking in the the concept of superhuman, criticism can very well be and is kryptonite to many, to us all, in some way shape or form so i hope that we've been able to spin that on its head a little bit and turn it more into an opportunity to challenge yourself not to be weakened by the criticisms or whatever you'd like to call it and see it more as an invitation for self-awareness so i think on that note superhuman remember to strengthen your mind body and soul muscles and stay amazing